0: The message this morning is from Mark chapter 10, Mark's Gospel chapter 10, and the subject is lessons from the rich young ruler. I have addressed some of these principles in various messages uh, in recent years, but I have not preached a, a message on the account and the gospels of the rich young ruler and Christ's dealing with him uh, in a, many years. I checked my record on that, and I feel that uh, as we focus on witnessing, especially to family, but not just family, to anyone that God puts across our path, uh, we need to understand some profound principles that are in this story. Mark chapter 10, I'll read uh, verses uh, 17 through 27. We won't be able to get the uh, 28 through 31 covered today in the message, so we won't read those verses. But beginning in verse 10, if you'll follow along as I read aloud. If I can find my spot, okay, Mark 10, 17, here we go. "'And when he was gone forth into the way, "'there came one running and kneeled to him "'and asked him, "'Good master, "'what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life?' "'And Jesus said unto him, "'Why callest thou me good? "'There is none good but one, that is God. "'Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, "'do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness.' Defraud not, don't covet, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying. And went away grieved, another account says sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23, Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Classic story. Inspired story if we don't understand it, we're going to be deficient in several ways. I rejoice in the simplicity of salvation, don't you? Jesus said that unless we become as little children, we shall not enter into the kingdom of God. He doesn't extol childish faith, but he does extol childlike faith. And as I said yesterday at the memorial service, the celebration of life for Barbara Petter, it's not the content of our faith that saves, it is the object of our faith. And Barbara's favorite verse was Acts, or passage Acts 16, 30 and 31, that's what I preached from. I'm not going to preach that one again. But in that uh, chapter, the Philippian jailer gets dramatically converted and there's an earthquake that breaks open the prison cells and the shackles off of the all of the prisoners. The jailer is about to kill himself because he thinks that his life is going to have, <clears throat> have to go for the lives of the prisoners. And that, but then he hears uh, Paul and Silas say, do thyself no harm. We're all here. So he calls for a light, a torch. He springs into their cell. He says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the answer comes back ringing so clearly and simply Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And he and his house were all saved and got baptized before dawn. The jailer believed. His wife believed. His children believed. Everybody in the house believed. And they were saved instantly, saved eternally. I don't want to take anything away from the majestic simplicity of that at all. That question asked by the Philippian jailer is strikingly similar to the one asked by the the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? And what good things shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is there essentially any difference? It's the same question. And yet how different the answers are between Jesus and Paul. Jesus did not say in answer to the rich young ruler's question, just believe on me. There must be a reason. And we want to investigate that reason today. This story is a timely or timeless classic. It's timely too, I believe. Because Christ's treatment of this young man just defies the conventional wisdom of much of modern evangelicalism and evangelism. And on the surface it looks like Jesus could have benefited from some modern witnessing techniques, don't you think? Maybe some church growth help? Or do you think maybe we are the losers if we fail to learn from the master soul winner himself? Which do you think it is? I think it's the latter. I submit to you that failure to learn from Jesus Christ, who said, Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, failure to learn from him will surely produce faults and shallow converts and likely discourage any sustained witness on our part. I praise the Lord for what he's doing in our hearts. He's stirring our hearts to give ourselves anew and afresh to uh, witnessing to our loved ones and neighbors and friends. But that will not hold up very long if we don't understand what this story is all about. Do you think Jesus is contradicting Paul? you think Paul contradicts Jesus? Nah. No. So we need to understand what Jesus meant in this passage. When he answered the rich young ruler the way he did, as urgent as is the need for the speedy conversion of our friends and neighbors and loved ones and co-workers we need to be patient. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. We must be careful not to pluck the green fruit. We need to learn to be skillful in the word of righteousness so that we will become effective soul winners. How did Jesus treat this promising young man and why? That's what this is all about. The message today, I mean when the young man asked the question that is the goal of all evangelism, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? I've never had anybody ask me that question quite that way. I mean, that's a, that's a soul-winning pastor's delight if somebody asks that question. But when this man asked the question that is the goal of all evangelism, why didn't Jesus just say, believe on me and you'll be saved? I want to answer that question. It's going to take the rest of our, my time with you to, to answer it. Notice how he treated him. And why? Number one, and first in order of what Jesus did, he corrected him. When he came to Jesus and said, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus stopped him short and said, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, and that is God. Now, why did Jesus cut him off? I mean, this man seems so promising, great prospect, why blow it? Why establish a barrier right away? Well, he, he stopped short of calling him God. The word good here in the Greek is not the word that means a good outcome. It's a word that means intrinsically good. Something good in and of itself. Good in its essence. The Bible says of all men, including you and me, There is none that doeth good, no, not the one. There's none good. So if Jesus was good, he had to be God. He had to be God. And this man stopped short of calling him that. Jesus says, if I'm not God, I'm not good. Now, mind you, this man showed great respect for Jesus probably really more respect than Nicodemus did, who came to Jesus by night. And Nicodemus was willing to say, "There's uh, nobody like you, nobody can do these miracles that you do, Jesus, except God be with him. And he thought Jesus would have been flattered by that and said, thank you for the compliment, but he didn't. But this man went farther than Nicodemus, but he still stopped short of calling Jesus God. But in order to receive what he wanted, eternal life, he would have had to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Twice in John chapter 8, Jesus said just very plainly, I just come right, he comes right out and says, if you believe not that I am, if you don't believe that I'm Jehovah, the self-existent one of the Old Testament, the one that revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, if you believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. A man must believe Jesus is God to be saved. Only God can save. Only God can forgive sins. But there's a second reason that Jesus corrected this young man. And that is, this rich young ruler asked Jesus a question for which he already knew the answer. When he asked the question, What good thing shall I do to, that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, You know the commandments. I don't need to tell, it's a rebuke, a little bit of a backhanded rebuke. I don't need to rehearse them for you, but he did. Why do you ask me what is good? You know what God has commanded in the law. You know what God expects. And he quoted the last six of the Ten Commandments. Notice that Jesus did not fault him for asking what he could do. What he could do. I've heard preachers in effect nullify (laughs) this whole passage, the main thrust of it, by saying that Jesus is teaching here salvation is by grace and not works. Well, now salvation is by grace apart from works, and we glory in that, we champion that, we say that all the time, but that is not what this passage is teaching. When I was a teenager, the first sermon I ever heard that I remember on the rich young ruler, the evangelist got us all confused. He said something like this, it's amazing I remember this, but it made such an impression on me. He said, this young man had it all wrong. He thought that salvation could be obtained by human merit, by doing, and that's why Jesus corrected him. He was teaching him that salvation is by grace, not by works. Now that is true that salvation is by grace, not by works, but that is not what Jesus is saying here. There was nothing wrong with this man's question. What shall I do? Just like the jailer said, what shall I do to be saved? Paul didn't rebuke the jailer when he said that. He answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. And Jesus gave a more extended answer to the rich young ruler. Similarly, when Peter answered those who were convicted at Pentecost by saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? He didn't rebuke them. He said, repent, be baptized. Now, we know what believing on Jesus means. There's nothing meritorious about that at all. We can't take the credit for doing anything. But what did Jesus say about that? Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, 28 and 29, please. John 6, 28 and 29. Jesus is giving his um, discourse about the bread of life. In verse 28, then said they unto him, what shall we do? There it is. Same word in the Greek. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Here's Jesus' answer. It's a profound one in verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that ye what? What's the next word, class? Believe. Believe on him whom he hath sent. To savingly trust in Christ is something God enables a sinner to do, but it is still something the sinner does. There's no contradiction there. His will is involved. It's a response of his heart. We need to understand that. Jesus had no added secret requirement for receiving eternal life. The emphasis in verse 18 is on the word me. Me. Jesus said, why callest thou me good? Why do you ask me that question? There's none good but God, and you know what He has said. So go out and keep the commandments. There's nothing new that I've added. There's no secret with me to gaining eternal life. That's what Jesus was saying here. Not, that's how, this man understood it that way. Of course, as we'll see in a moment, the very purpose for God's giving the Ten Commandments had nothing to do with earning salvation. For by the works of the law there shall no flesh be justified. That's said twice in the Bible in the New Testament. It's said in Romans 3 verse 20. It's also said in Galatians 2 verse 16. You're you're real quiet this morning. I hope it's because you're processing what I'm saying, okay? Uh, I, I don't mind that. I just don't want you to go to sleep on me. Jesus corrected him. Number two, Jesus compassionated him. Beholding him, he loved him, verse 21. That's, and only Mark says that. In the other accounts, that phrase is not present. Jesus looked at him and something about this young man, we're not sure exactly what, moved his heart with pity and compassion. And when Jesus spoke these words, though it wasn't what the young man was waiting to hear, when Jesus spoke these words, He did so out of love. He wasn't caustic. He wasn't sarcastic. He wasn't deprecating. But please notice, though Jesus loved him, he didn't congratulate him. He didn't say, oh, what a promising prospect you are. Let me commend you for your serious thinking about this matter. He did not congratulate him. But he loved him. This young man showed such rare determination and sincerity. Here was a hungry heart. This man knew that there was something that was called eternal life, and he knew that he wanted it. He was not a universalist, just assuming that God loves everybody so much that He could not send anybody to hell. No, he wasn't a universalist. Jesus loved him. And maybe even as he spoke with him, tears came to his eyes, just as they did when he wept over the city of Jerusalem. There was so much commendable about this young man. Notice he came in the right way. He came running. I've seen some people come down the aisle right at the first stands of an invitation. I've never seen anybody run down the aisle. But this man came running to Jesus. There was a sense of urgency about his coming. It was a matter of pressing concern to him that that he should know what to do in order to gain eternal life. Let's face it, most people in his condition, young and rich, couldn't care less about eternity, but not this man. Notice that he knelt. He knelt before Jesus, he showed true humility. The Bible doesn't say Nicodemus knelt, although Nicodemus acknowledged Christ as a teacher that had come from God. This man did it openly in front of the other disciples. Nicodemus came under the under darkness at night. Notice he came to the right person. He came to Jesus, the source of eternal life, even though he really didn't know who Jesus was because he wouldn't acknowledge him as God what does the Bible say, and and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And where is that life? This life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Couldn't be simpler of all monosyllables there. Others among the ranking Jews, like this young ruler, were too proud to come to Jesus And Jesus acknowledged that. He said, and you will not come to me that you might have life. In John 5 verse 40. But this man came to him. There were those who disdained Jesus as a teacher. In John 9 verse 34 they really got snide with him. You were born in sins, referring to his virgin conception. And do you teach us? You know, there are many folk around the world who are looking for eternal life, looking really hard, but they're looking in the wrong places. They're going to gurus and priests and popes and philosophers and celebrities. No wonder they're coming up empty. Jesus is the only source of eternal life, amen? And there's hope for the man or the woman that will come to him. He came in the right way. He came to the right person. He asked the right question. Verse 17, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This is Mark's account. But in Matthew's account, it's worded, what good thing shall I do? So when you've heard me say that, I wasn't adding to the word of God. That's right? found in Matthew's account. And the context suggests here that he just suddenly blurted out this question, creating quite a scene. Again, I've never had anybody ask me that question, but what a golden opportunity that would be to give the gospel and point to Christ. And I'm afraid most of us, if somebody said that, would have just given Paul's answer in Acts chapter 16, regardless of the situation and the condition of heart of the person asking the question. Now the very fact that he asked this question indicated, are you listening? Are you still with me? Indicated that in spite of his conscientiousness and his morality, he said all these things have I kept from my youth up, all the Ten Commandments, or at least the, the last six of the ten, in spite of that he still had an uneasy sense that all was not well. He still lacked something. Isn't it striking that a man or a woman who is depending on their works to get to heaven is never quite sure they've done enough, never quite sure they've done enough. This man knew what he wanted. He wanted eternal life, but he wasn't sure he had attained to it yet. So what good are riches? What good is youth? What good is fame or power, influence, even good health? If you don't know that when you die, you're going to live forever in heaven. In effect, you're just getting fattened up for the slaughter. I hope you're concerned about that. Notice that Christ loves even those who won't let Him save them. We're talking about that phrase, Jesus beholding Him, loved Him. God is long-suffering. He's forbearing towards sinners. He gives them many opportunities to repent as we read in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. He's long suffering to usward. Why? He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repent. And any means any. All means all. We're ready to see notorious butchers executed. God is not. The first recorded cry from the cross. His Father, forgive them, Jesus said, for they know not what they do. At that very moment, the Son of God, who was suffering the blows and the injustices and the cumulative cruelty of all sinners that were crucifying Him, His heart was filled with love and pity. He was praying for them. That's still His heart. But as much as Jesus loved the soul of this man, please listen, he would not save him on his terms. It had to be Christ's terms. Jesus refused to dumb down the gospel. Yes, God is love, amen. Thank God for that. He doesn't just conform to an outward standard of love. He is that standard. He's love. But first and foremost, as we sang at the beginning of the service, and I hope you noticed it, he is holy. Isn't it amazing that he always deals first with sin? That's his MO in the Gospels. Whether it's Nicodemus or the woman of Samaria, go call your husband, and she had to tell the truth. Or the paralytic lowered on a stretcher through a hole in the roof by his four friends. He said, son, thy sins be forgiven. Or with this dashing, promising, sharp young man, Jesus deals first with sin. Sin is what alienates us from God. Sin is what causes us to be under the condemnation of eternal death in the lake of fire. And if we got as worked up about it as Jesus is, we'd be warning people more about the place they're headed. Many of you remember, we showed a clip several times here, it's been out for a while, of the well-known uh, atheist magician, Penn Gillette of the Penn, uh, Penn and Teller team. He, um, he, he recorded this video and he was moved to tears as he was doing it. It's not a long one, well, you can still watch it if you Google it. A member of Gideon's International, the group that distributes Bibles, we have several in our church, had come to him and seen one of his performances, said some complimentary words and gave him a New Testament with a word of witness. And this avowed atheist, Penn Gillette, defended this man against those who were ridiculing him. And this is exactly what he said. You can listen to it for yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? A professing atheist said that. But we let the devil spook us out. If this seeker was jolted when Christ called his bluff with his defective notion of good, he was really about to be broadsided with what Christ would say next. He really crushed him. It's so instructive to note how the master deals with this young man. We've taught the way of the master witnessing, and Ray Comfort really helps us with this. After recounting in verse 19 the last six of the Ten Commandments, that's what he says, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. Those are the last six of the Ten Commandments, and these deal with our relationship with our fellow man, whereas the first four deal with our relationship with God. And after Jesus ran off the catalog, the man replied, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Verse 20, I ask you, had he? No. Did Jesus call his bluff about it? No. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus didn't say you're lying and you know it. Instead, he said something far more effective And he introduced it by saying, taking him on his own ground, not contradicting him, not calling him a liar, but saying, One thing thou lackest. And don't you know, as earnest as this man was about gaining eternal life, his ears perked up. Just one thing I can do it. There's just one thing I lack. I've done so much already. One thing I can do this. But the air fizzled out of his balloon real quick. As Jesus said, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it away to the poor, come follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven, piece of cake, nothing to it, right? Oh, did Jesus ever hit a nerve? He went for the jugular here. He exposed this man's besetting sin. In verse 21, he said that, If you would be perfect, simply go your way. Sell whatsoever you have, give to the poor. Now why should this man have been willing to do that? What is the summation of the second table of the Ten Commandments that Jesus recounted here? Love thy neighbor as thyself. The summation of the first four is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the summation of the, of the last six commandments is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So Jesus was saying in effect here, surely you will not object to your poor neighbor having your wealth if you love your neighbor as yourself. You'll gladly part with him everything that he needs. So Jesus did call take him on his own ground. And in this way called his bluff at this point, exposing the grand problem, the besetting sin in this man's life, his greed. He loved his riches more than he loved Christ. He wasn't willing to part with them. It was the idol in his heart. And Paul told the Colossians, covetousness is as what? Idolatry. God will not share his glory with any idol, whether it's Buddha Mohammed, or whether it's covetousness, materialism. It's good to see one of our foreign exchange students, foreign students that was here a number of years, T, that got saved. She came from Vietnam. Many of you remember her testimony. She's still right here on this platform. She talked about how she had been witnessed to by Patty Somer and others coming from a Buddhist background, and she said, I finally came to the conclusion I couldn't hang on to Buddha with one hand and Jesus with the other, so I let Buddha go. We'll never forget that. But it's not just Buddha you have to let go. If it's some other idol, the almighty dollar, you're going to have to let it go. Now, is Jesus teaching here that eternal life is conditional upon giving everything away? No, that would be work salvation. And salvation is by grace apart from works, even if it involves giving of alms and self-imposed poverty. We read in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, it opens up by saying that a man could give away everything that he has. He could even give his body to be burned and still not have love. And devoid of love, he would not be accepted of God. No, salvation is by faith. It's by just believing on Christ, depending on Him, but... The Bible teaches that there are some things that keep sinners from believing. Did you know that? There are some barriers that must be removed in some cases before a person can believe. We don't hear much about this. We don't hear verses on John five forty four, where Jesus said, "How can ye believe?" Did you hear that? How can you believe which receive honor one from another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God? This man's bulging pockets would not allow him to go through the narrow doorway into the kingdom of God. And these words from Jesus' lips were purse-shattering. They crushed him. This was not what he expected. He was not willing to part with his wealth. Jesus exposed the grand idol on his heart, and he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved. Jesus exacted two things. First of all, he exacted repentance. For any man to do what Jesus stipulated here, he'd have to repent of his besetting sin, greed. He would have to have a change of mind, metaneo, that's the Greek word. That means a change of mind. That's what repentance is. He'd have to have a change of mind about his riches. Because as things were right now, they, they, they were the supreme good in his life. A man's religion is his reliance. Whatever is the supreme good is, his, is the God in his life. And that idol would have to be dethroned. The love of money. Now for other sinners it could be some other sin. As suggested by verse 20. 29, if you look there, when Jesus spoke to His disciples, Verily I say unto you, verse 29, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and the Gospels. We'll just stop there. He was touching on the areas where there can be an idol. It could be a darling sin, a sinful habit. It could be a a relationship. It could be a possession. It could be a point of pride. It could be a career or a vocation, something that maybe is innocent enough in itself, seemingly small and insignificant, but it can keep one out of heaven. And this is what accounts for the difference in responses to the same essential question that was put to both Jesus and to the Apostle Paul. The Philippian jailer was already shaken and convicted of his sin, He'd been hearing Paul and Silas sing praises to God all night long. No no telling what else he'd heard. All he needed to hear was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But this rich young ruler was another matter. He was not yet convicted. He thought he was ready to be saved. He was not. For Jesus to tell him just believe on me would have been plucking the green fruit. And yet our churches in the United States of America are full of people that have made that kind of an intellectual ascent to Jesus. And pastors are trying to pander to them, tiptoeing through the tithers to keep the show going. Sometimes I've heard people say, well, unbelief is the only sin that will keep a man out of heaven." God will forgive murder, adultery, theft, profanity, drunkenness, gambling, cheating on your income tax, fill in the blank. And unbelief means rejection of Christ. This is what people will say. I would answer by saying true, but do you know that your repentance can hinge on a specific sin? And your rejection of Jesus Christ will involve your acceptance of some sin in its place. And to repent, you must repent of that. This was indelibly impressed upon me with an experience that happened years ago. I've shared it several times from the pulpit. I won't be as detailed as I have at the other times. But a young man, 21 years of age, as I was working on construction, the early stages of construction of our building there in Grand Cayman, Calvary Baptist Church. Didn't have a roof on, walls were going up, but the sun gets pretty hot in the Caribbean. So in the middle part of the day, most people knock off working. So I was knocked off and I was seeking the shade of my tool shed. That was the only thing I had. This guy, 21 years of age and sweatpants and flip-flops. Walks up with a Bible under his arm. I thought, this guy's a cult. He's trying to waste my time taking advantage of me, eating my lunch and taking a break. That Bible was all marked up, more color-coded than any preacher's Bible I've ever seen. And to make a long story short, he asked me some very relevant questions about salvation, told me experiences he'd been through. And so I I felt led to give him the whole plan of salvation. I emphasized repentance and so forth. I brought him to the drawing of the net and calling on the Lord to be saved. He said, wait a minute. He said, I work as a sound technician for a local nightclub. It's part of the, I think it was the um, Holiday Inn at the time. He said, you can imagine what goes on at such places. And I said, oh, Yeah. He said, would I have to quit my job to become a Christian? Let me tell you what, I sent up a quick SOS to the Lord, you know. You can't send a letter, send a postcard. And I said, Lord, help me. I don't want to confuse the issue of salvation, but I don't want to let this man off the hook. And this is what I told him. I said, that was his name, Denny. I said, in your case, you would. Because you would not have even raised that issue unless the Holy Spirit had convicted you. And you won't get saved on your terms, you'll get saved on God's. And God being my witness, he broke into a big grin and he said, I just wanted to hear what you would say. I turned in my notice this morning. What if I let him off the hook? I have told that story several times to people and not telling what I said to them in response. And I said, how would you have answered it? And almost all of them had said, I would just told him, believe on Jesus and take that matter up with God later. If I had done that, I would have frustrated the work of the Holy Spirit's conviction in his life. We need to know how to deal with souls about this. Jesus was also urging this man not only to repent, but complete surrender. If we must believe with all of our heart to be saved. Remember, that's what uh, Philip said to the Ethiopian eunuch as he explained Isaiah 53 to him. And it's quite obvious that he did believe. He saw an oasis out there in the desert. You don't just see that every mile or two. He said, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all thine heart, thou mayest. We must believe with all the heart. Jesus was aiming for nothing less than all of the heart of this young ruler. Someone has well said. It's been put into a song, I think. All he wants is all of you. All he wants is all of you. My dear brothers and sisters, as we set out to win our lost loved ones to Christ this year and others as well, With renewed zeal and intentionality, let's learn from the master soul winner himself. Let's deal faithfully with lost souls. Let's be led by the Holy Spirit. I'll be the first to acknowledge, I am not omniscient. But I have the one who is. I have the Holy Spirit. And it's amazing how he can lead me just to point out the very verse of Scripture that becomes the sword of the Spirit piercing the one vulnerable spot in that sinner's armor. It's happened more than once. We need to reaffirm our faith in the Word of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Spirit. Great man of God... He's been with the Lord a number of years. Dr. Ellie Maxwell founded the Prairie Bible Institute up in Three Hills, Alberta, Canada, way up there in Canada. Scores, if not hundreds of graduates, went to the mission field from that place. He understood this, and he said this in his book, Crowded to Christ. Just where your rocky heart breaks is where the living waters will flow. Just where your rocky heart breaks is where the living waters will flow. Jesus epitomizes that. Well, how did the story end? It kind of has a sad ending, doesn't it? The rich young ruler came to Jesus with such bright promise. He came for eternal life, but he left without it. Did he ever get saved? The Bible doesn't say I think there's a glimmer of hope here. Because although he went away grieved, he went away sorrowful, he did go away sobered. He went away with a little bit of a less estimation of himself perhaps than when he came. Jesus put a pebble in his shoe. He gave him plenty to think about. And then he went on to say, with with God all things are possible. It's a miracle for anybody to get saved. It's especially a miracle for a rich man. And so I challenge all of us, in all of our zeal to see our loved ones saved, let's refuse to dumb down the gospel. Let's seek to be led by the Holy Spirit and to be skillful in the word of righteousness. Otherwise, when we see false professions, will run out of steam about witnessing. I may be speaking to someone today, either here in person or by means of the live stream. You're not saved. And if you were honest, you would admit you love your sin more than you love Jesus Christ. Oh, you desire eternal, eternal life. Is there any man or woman in their right mind that doesn't want to go to heaven? But the truth is, you're not willing to forsake all for Jesus. You want to be popular with the crowd. You don't want to lose that unsaved girlfriend or boyfriend. You know that job dishonors God, you're not willing to give it up. You can believe intellectually but you're not going to be able to believe from the heart. You cannot trust Christ with your heart because something else is filling your heart. And just like T had let Buddha go, you're going to have to let that thing go. So I ask you, which will it be? Your darling sin? That thing that's precious to you? Or Christ? Christ? This man came to Christ for eternal life. He asked a question that would have caused most pastors to think that he really had been, was ready to be saved, ready to sign the dotted line. But he left without salvation. And I beg you, don't imitate his fatal mistake. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this classic story and its profound lessons please enable us to forsake all for Christ. There's one under the sound of my voice that's not saved. Would you give them the grace to do that? The humility to just say in front of others, I repent of sin. I confess Christ as Savior. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, as we renew our our vows, our commitment, our dedication to witness to others. Help us to use the law lawfully to seek the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit alone can bring through the law of God. Lord, I don't know about any others here today, but I know I want to see true converts, not false ones. We helplessly depend upon the Holy Spirit to bring these truths and these methods to our remembrance. May we cooperate with Him, rather than counteract Him. We pray that Jesus will get the glory as we pray it in His name. Amen.